When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Decibel Geek Podcast with Chris Zenzak and Aaron Kamara. It's that special time of year, a magical time here on the Decibel Geek Podcast where I, Aaron Camaro, and my co-host Chris Sinzak, we get festive. It only comes once a year. It's July, and you know how we celebrate it here? We celebrate it with Kissmas in July. The entire month dedicated to talking about nothing but the hottest band in the land, and man, are you guys in for a treat today. Chris, I know you got to be excited for this. You set this one up, and man, I am stoked for it. Yeah, I'm really excited for our guest today. We're uh, we're gonna have a we're gonna intro introduce him here in a few minutes. But if you remember all the the interviews with crew members we've had from the past, you know that we always do have a good talk with these guys, and uh, I think today will be no exception. So we got to take care of our business real quick. Yeah, let's knock this out real fast. You know what we like? We like reviews, whether it's an Apple Podcast review, a Podchaser review, even a Facebook recommendation. We'll take them any way we can get them, and you're the ones that can give them to us. So let's knock this one out because it's a good one. It's an Apple Podcast review, and it's entitled Amazing Podcast. It's got all five stars, and it goes like this. As a fan of the Rock and Metal Combat podcast, been listening to these guys recently, and they do not disappoint. Very entertaining. Been loving the quarantine sessions lately. Something to keep you entertained during these rough times. Aaron has a great radio voice. And guys, please try to get Lizzie Borden to do an Albums Unleashed with you guys. Man, that would be awesome. That comes to us from Eric Jordan from right here in the good old USA. A sweet podcast review from Apple. Gotta love that, right? Yeah, I love that. Maybe uh maybe we look into contacting Lizzie Borden in the future and get do one. Which album would you pick to do? him oh man i'd really have to think that over because there's a handful of them that i'd love to talk to lizzie borden about maybe we just start at the beginning and get them to keep coming back for more and more and more i have a soft spot for visual lies yeah me too that's probably my absolute favorite but i want to know about all of them i want to know about everything yeah and uh our other favorite people geeks of the week these are people that share it on facebook we tweeted on twitter last week's quarantine with a k session episode we did with uh kevin williams and thank you thanks kevin for coming on and uh it was a fun one 
Yeah, I'm super looking forward to that new album from The Swear. And man, it's good. You guys, I can't wait for you to hear the whole thing. And check out Kevin's podcast, In Obscuria, which is awesome. If you guys dig what we're doing here, you're definitely going to dig what he's doing over there. And we had a lot of fun with Kevin last week, talked about all kinds of different Kiss stuff, laughed our butts off the whole way through the show. And people got out there and they shared that stuff and they retweeted it. And when they do that, they become a Geek of the Week. And Geeks of the Week this week are Wayne Cross, Shay Hargett, Kristen Schimbeck, John Fellows, Baco, Matt Porter, Grayson Gallegos, Jay Shiblewski, Andrew Jacobs, Mikhail Burrell, Jessica Pone, Todd Cunningham, Craig Turdich, David Glenn, Kiss Army, Omaha, Mike Parnell, In Obscuria Podcast, Kevin Williams, Sean Cullen, Aaron Baker, Joel Hoffman, Bill Elam, David Cathy, Focus on Metal, Ernesto Aguiar, and as always, even though I didn't put it on the sheet, The, the Mover Fooger. That's right. If you want to become a Geek of the Week, wait a minute, and Rock and Ron Runyon, <laughs> if you want to become yes, Geek course. of the Week, all you got to do is just that. Get out there, take this week's episode, and you share it, retweet it from the original posts, and we will mention you on next week's show. You will be an honorary Geek of the Week. Man, let's get to it. I'm so excited. So, Chris, why don't you go ahead and tell everybody who we got with us. So, uh Today on the show, we're joined by Barry Ackham, and Barry, which, which we'll get in more of his history with the band in general, was a tech for Kiss in the during the Zenith years, like around 76 through 78, and uh, we've had crew guys on from the very beginning. We had Moose on. We had Pixie on from the Dynasty Tour. We had Kenny Barr on from the Revenge era, mm-hmm. So, but this is the first crew member from like kind of the glory years that I think we've ever had on, so Barry, welcome to the show. Thank you, guys. It's actually Barry Acom, but that's you know a lot of people pronounce it that way. Well, the, you know Ace is always known for saying "ack," so I, I didn't know if that's where the name came from. <laughs> hey, give me a limo pronto or heads will roll. <laughs> oh, I can tell we're gonna have fun already. <laughs> Man, Barry, how so, how do you get this gig way back in the day when you? I mean, when this all first so, starts for you, how do you even get hooked up with Kiss? Well, you're aware Paul Cheveria, who was Gene's uh, tech, right? Gene Simmons' tech. Paul Cheveria was from my hometown in Van Wert, Ohio. And uh, Paul came home in 1975. He came home during uh, Christmas break. And he uh, he said, uh, or no, it was Thanksgiving. I'm sorry, it was Thanksgiving. And I ran into him and he said, hey, man, he goes, we're looking for a guitar tech for Kiss. And at that time, they were just, you know, they weren't, they weren't huge, right? They were just kind of really getting ready to take off. And, um, and I said, well, you know, I don't know. And he goes, well, we need somebody right away. We've been through like seven or eight guys and nobody's working out. They just don't mesh with, uh, Ace and Paul. And I said, well, I don't know. And he goes, you got to tell me and you got to give me a, an answer tomorrow because you got to be in New York. And this was a Thursday. He says, you got to be in New York by, Saturday by noon. And I said, well, I'll let you know tomorrow. So the next day I thought about it and I thought about it and I was in a band at that time. I played bass and I, and I thought, well, you know, I could stay here in Van Wert and, you know, maybe make it with my band. Right. Or I could go, you know, on the road and get some experience and meet some people and travel. So I, you know, it actually, at the time it was a hard decision for me. But, you know, in hindsight, it was the best decision I ever made. Right. So the next day on a Saturday, I was in New York and Paul Cheveria and Zero, who was the pyrotechnician, picked me up in a station wagon. And we went to the office, which was then Rocksteady, and we picked Gene and Paul up. 
So I met them like, uh, you know, like 45 minutes after I got off the plane, I, I was meeting Gene and Paul. I helped them put the, their guitars in the back of the car and we went to a rehearsal studio and that was it. I started setting up the amps and, you know, because I didn't really didn't know much about the band at the time. And that's probably what made it good for me, for them and me was that I wasn't a huge fan. I didn't really know about their music or, you know, anything about them really. So I just did my job. I did what I knew how to do, which was take care of the amps and the guitars and tune them and all that stuff. So that's, that's how I got the gig. That's awesome. And they liked me. They liked cool. me. I got along real good with Ace right off the yeah. bat. Because he knew I knew what I was talking about. He knew that he felt comfortable with me. So that was good. Yeah. Do you remember what the first show was that you worked for them? God, no. <laughs> I don't. Uh, I'm it, looking. it was a whirlwind. All I got to tell you is it was a whirlwind because we did two weeks of rehearsals. And, and we had – it was when the band – had just graduated from a writer truck, right? Uh, opening shows. And the band had just started flying the tour before that. But prior to that, they were all riding in a, a station wagon and the crew was all in a rider truck. So they just went to their first semi. So I got on right at the beginning. It was like getting on a rocket ship right as it's ready to take off. Uh, and I didn't know, I didn't know what was going to happen, but they got their first semi and they, and we got our first bus. So the crew actually got to travel on a bus. I think it was in, it was in Boston, I think, or some, somewhere up in the East coast was where the first gig was. I can't remember yeah. exactly. Was New it York like somewhere? Was it around January 76? Yeah. Somewhere yeah. in that area. I'm look. I'm looking I at a list of tour. Nobody ever asked me that, and I never thought about it. To be honest with you. Oh yeah. Well, we're we're super nerds, but uh, <laughs> yeah. They. I've got. It looks like well, January. I'm have all the dates you guys want. You can look up the dates. I'm not going to have all the right dates. I can tell you. No, that. I got you. <laughs> well, in in January '76, like they, you were there for the three night run at Cobo Hall in Detroit, right? Oh yes. Oh yes. Yeah. That was something. I that was that sticks in my mind. That was a. That was a, a really good show, you know? That's kind of what, where I really gained a lot of respect for the band was during that show. I thought, now, these guys are good, you know? We had all these cameras set up, you know? There were lots of cameras, I remember that, from the stage and everything. And then we went back to the hotel. We were watching, we were in Ace's room, and we were watching some of the footage from the, from the show. And of course, they had the big cameras back then, none of this GoPro stuff. Right. Well, that's that's well, yeah. Those shows are kind of legendary with Kiss fans because I mean, and that was kind of them. They had kind of arrived with those shows because I sell sell out three shows in Detroit. That's that's amazing. And so, like, seem Detroit always just seemed to be a real base for that band. Like, they really got what Kiss was about. It seems. Well, I think they broke in Detroit. You know, I think Cleveland has been known to break a lot of bands. You know, Genesis and a whole bunch of bands broke out of Cleveland. And and Detroit, They've, those have been known places for bands to break out. And I think Kiss were very smart. I think they knew that. And they knew that they they had to go somewhere outside of their city to conquer someplace else before they could come back home. It's, it's that old saying, you got to leave home to make it. Then you can come back home. Right. And that's kind of what they did. At least that's the way it, that's the way it played out anyway. Yeah. Whether, whether it was a real plan or not, that's the way it played. 
what were the um what were the guys like personality wise when you first met them like i mean did, were they pretty interesting right off the bat or, or like did they change over the years as fame kind of kicked in yeah they changed they definitely changed but the personalities were there i mean they were who they were you yeah. know ace never really changed he's the only <laughs> one that i could say and peter didn't really ever change but uh Paul and Gene, there you could say their ego got a little bigger as time went along. I, you know, I have no problem saying that, and I'm sure that they would admit that too. Um, but Ace was who he was. I mean, he just whether here's a great story. Uh, when he was on, this was during right after Destroyer. He was on, after the Destroyer tour ended. He was in a guitar shop somewhere in upstate New York. He walked into a guitar shop and they had an old. I don't know, 58 Les Paul, 59 Les Paul hanging on the wall. And it was hanging up real high on, in the store. And Ace was just had a T-shirt on and he had jeans and tennis shoes. That was it, you know. And he he said, hey, can I see that guitar? I want to play that guitar up there. And the guy goes, no, sorry, man. Uh, no, you can't play it. And he goes, yeah, but there was a poster of him behind on the wall, behind the guitar. He says, well, that's me right there. And the guy goes, yeah, right, kid. Get, get out of here. He had, he had a watch on. A, it was called a, it was from Tiffany called a, a, a Pulsar watch. A Pulsar, I think. Anyway, it was a digital watch and it was engraved to Ace Fraley from Bill of Coin on the back of the watch. So he had to take his watch off and show it to the guy. And then the guy goes, oh, I'm sorry. And he got the guitar down and let him play it. So. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet that kind of That's stuff true. happened to those guys all the time. Well, yeah, back then because see they they didn't allow anybody to take photos of them right. without their makeup. I was lucky they let me do it. They trusted me, you know. Uh, Gene was the most skeptical about about all of the photo stuff, but uh, you know they always wore bandanas and you know they always hid their face. And Big John, he was oh man, you did not want him to get a hold of your camera because he flat out just. <laughs> Like film out of it, throw it on the ground and step on it, and then throw your camera back at you. I've seen him do that many times. <laughs> but he was really a big. He really had a big heart. The guy was great, and it was just a show. You know, he didn't want anybody else taking pictures, so he made it evident that nobody was allowed to take pictures. Nice. So yeah, Big John's a good dude. I like him. Oh man, he's great. He was the best. I loved that guy. Was, and, um, and our was, whole crew was tight. The thing about it was the whole crew, Paul Cheveria, you know, um, Mick Campisi at the time, and uh, Rick Finrow, uh on lights, um, me on, you know, with guitars. And I was, when I started, I took care of Ace and Paul. And we had the, the long guitar chords. We had like 50, 60-foot long guitar chords. So I was, in my mind, whenever I was working with them on stage, you know, Paul would run around and jump around with his guitar and stuff, and Ace would, you know, they'd cross the chords over. So I had to kind of like, it was like having the reins on a wagon train, you know, yeah, on right. a wagon horse. Because I'd have to make sure those chords didn't get tangled up or they or Paul would, might trip with those platforms and stuff, you know. So it was, I was relieved when we got the wireless system. Oh, I bet. Right. When we got the wireless guitar system, that was incredible. And I got wow. a great story. Yeah, let's hear it. Okay. <laughs> so 
Uh, fast forward to uh, Love Gun, I guess was Ben or see. You guys will probably know this. You can look this up, but it was um, sometime around um, seventy. Well, it had to be seventy-seven, I guess. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ken Schaefer uh, got a hold of these wireless systems. I think he developed them. If he didn't develop them, and he had a lot to something to do with them, I'm pretty sure he was uh, the the guy that invented them. Him and somebody else, anyway. He came up to, we were in Newburgh, New York, getting ready for the tour. We had a big airplane hangar in Newburgh, New York, where they set up the whole stage, the light, the sound, everything, so the band could rehearse. Because what they normally did was did two-week rehearsal in a studio in Manhattan somewhere, you know, SIR, one of those rehearsal studios, a small one, and just went through the songs they were going to do. And then they would do the, you know, the live show, you know, full stage, lights, get the lighting cues, all that stuff down. And then they would do a dress rehearsal, you know, the last couple of days before we'd gone on tour. Well, we were going to set up the, it was a perfect time to set up these wireless guitars. So we were um, uh, putting these wireless things in, in these leather pockets and putting them on the straps and then, you know, testing them out. And they were on like UHF frequency bands. So, it was like the old television bands, UHF. Yeah. And so anyway, we got them set up and, you know, Gene Paul and all of them had, all of them were working. All their um, guitars were working. And of course, now imagine you're, you're tied to, it's like you're tied to a stake with a rope, right? And then somebody unties you. Yeah. And you've been playing all the time with the cord and you could never go out to the front, stand at the soundboard. And hear what it sounded like out front. So the first thing Paul wanted to do was go out and stand at the soundboard, which is what he did. Sure. And Gene happened to be singing. So the first song that they did, Gene was had to sing on that particular song. I don't remember what it was. But anyway, he's singing. And Ace, of course, Ace is like, oh, I got to check this out. So Ace goes down the stairs. Paul goes down the stairs. And they disappear. You know, Paul, and all of a sudden we see Paul out at the soundboard. But then we don't see Ace. We can hear him playing. <laughs> His solos are coming through the amplifier, right? Uh-huh. And Gene's looking around, and Gene does not like this fact that they're not there <laughs> on stage with him. He he, he was upset with that. Because he want, I think he wanted to be out there, too, walking around, you know. But he had to be singing the song. So yeah. um, after that song was over, he came back over to me, and he says, where's Ace? And I said, because you can see Paul at the board, right? Mm-hmm. And he goes, where's that? I said, I don't know. And he goes, find him right now. <laughs> so Hawkeye and I went out looking for Ace. Now, this is a big airplane hangar. And down each side of the airplane hangar are offices, like like probably about 20, all the way down the thing. So we're walking down. We're trying to find him. We think he's in one of those offices. Meanwhile, they're doing another song. And the guitar still coming. His his lead parts are still coming through. His guitar parts are still coming through, right? But nobody can find him. So we, I said, I don't know where he's at. Hawkeye said, I don't know either. So we go back up on stage, and again, the song ends, and Gene goes, where the fuck is Ace? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Am I allowed to cuss on this show? Sure. <laughs> yes. You, yes. <laughs> and uh, I was saying, we don't know. And he goes, find him now. And he gave us one of those monster faces, you know, that he's famous for. And he goes, find him now. So we went back, went in the bathroom again. I went, went in the bathroom, and I thought, I wonder if he's up on the toilet, you know? 
sure as shit, I, I got down on my hands and knees and I looked under the toilet and he was, he was crouched, you know, <laughs> with his feet up on the toilet with his guitar shoved in there, all in this, in this regular size stall playing guitar. <laughs> Hiding from everybody. That's awesome. And that's the kind of, that's the kind of shit he did all the time. He did stuff like that. But he's still playing, so you know he's in the vicinity. You just don't know where the hell he's at. <laughs> we didn't know because it was loud. See, it was loud coming from the PA and shit, so we couldn't tell. We couldn't hear him messing around or you know making any noise, obviously. Yeah. But we could hear the guitar coming out of the speakers outside of the restroom, right? Too so funny. it was pretty funny. That's hilarious. That is awesome. Oh man! Yeah, well, you were that story never made it into any books or anything. No, that's funny as hell. I know that um, – well, and this is a techie question. I've, a friend of mine named Jason who runs a KISS Facebook page, I, I mentioned that we were going to interview you, and he, he asked to get you to confirm that Gene's bass output jack was routed out in the back until the Alive 2 tour in 77 when he went wireless. The transmitter yeah. was in the back of the guitar. It was on the strap for a while, and then okay. uh, in the back of the guitar. We actually put him in the guitars. We put him in the guitars – what happened was we had them on the outside on the strap in a leather pouch. And then the, the wire came down from the strap and plugged in. It was hard to see it. And then, um, we decided to try to put them in the guitars. So we put them in the guitars, but the problem with that was if one of those things fucked up or you needed to change a battery because the battery, uh, you know, went dead, then it was, it was too hard to get to it, to change it, not during the live show. So we needed to, fast way to do it so then we put them back on the straps again uh, mm. because that was easier and much easier to do and we could mm. just change out the the path we actually had another unit that we would just slide in plug it in and take the other one out but if it was in the oh. back of the guitar then we would have had to unscrew the plate on the back and all that stuff so gotcha okay cool well i just want to make sure i asked that for him because he was like make sure you ask him this and i was like i don't know if he's gonna know that but yeah you have a good memory for that stuff yeah, um, well, that's what we. You, had, you mentioned Paul Shavaria, Mick Campisi, people like that, um, mm -hmm. and we talked to Moose Orkenzo, who was he was with Kiss early on, and I think he left right before you came in. Um, yeah, he, did. he had a yeah, he had a bad injury, but uh, it just from what he had told us, the crew in those early days was really like a brotherhood. I mean, because like a Kiss show, even back in those days, it was more sparse. But I have to imagine. That show must have still been a very back-breaking show to put on every night. Oh, it was. Trust me, it was. But we, the crew was tight. What I was going to tell you when I told you about, you know, Cheveria and, and uh, Mick Campisi and everybody and Hawkeye, Rick Hendrickson and me, uh, we were all very tight, very tight. There, were no, there was no rivalry or animosity. We were very close, and we helped each other out all the time. So we just all got along. And right. but we were very very um, uh, protective of the band as well, almost like secondary security guards, if you will. We took care of them too, you know. If we were out and we were at a party or whatever with them or whatever, we watched out for them as well. Like for example, um, there was a, there was a, a thing with Blue Oyster Cult, and uh, we were playing uh, Nassau Coliseum in New Jersey. I can't remember exactly when this was, but Blue Oyster Cult was opening up the show for us. 
And uh, Eric Bloom was getting a little testy backstage in the hallway about how they were the ones that came up with the bombs, with the flash bombs and stuff, and with the concussion bombs that they used on stage. And they actually were the ones that first started doing that. But he was like, you know, kind of getting like testy between him and Gene, and they were they were kind of arguing and stuff. So we had to step in between them and just say, hey, you know, you guys just need to chill out. Doesn't really matter, you know. Just do your show because Kiss used to open up for Blue Oyster Cult. So now all of a sudden Blue Oyster Cult's opening up for them. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but Eric's a good guy. I I became good friends with Eric Bloom. He's a pretty good guy. But That's... but what I'm saying is we we defended those guys fiercely. You know, we protected them. I don't know how it went on after I was after I left, but uh, we were a very tight crew. And I got to imagine, too, at that time, especially, you know, Kiss is on the rise. And like you say, bands like Blue Oyster Cult, where a couple of years ago, Kiss were nobodies, and they were opening up shows that Blue Oyster Cult was the headliners on. Now, just a couple of years later, you know, BOC, they're opening for Kiss. And Kiss is one of them bands where I got to imagine pretty easily the other bands playing with them can get pissed off, even if the band don't personally do nothing to them, just by the fact of looking at them and going, <clears throat> Were there any bands that ever really came close to, you know, big explosion fights in the back between them and Kiss? No, not really. Um, well, I'd have to think about that one, but more, I can tell you more about the bands that got along with them. And those were the bands that didn't see him as threat. They didn't see him as a threat. They, they saw him as a, as a music marketing machine. And, and that was bands like Sticks and Rush and people like that. They would come up, the guy, um, who is it, Tommy Shaw from Sticks, he'd come up and ask me about some of the business techniques, the marketing techniques that they used. Hmm. So, you know, a lot of the bands were in awe of Kiss just from their sheer marketing aspect because they were the first band to really go full out uh, marketing since the Beatles, really. Right. Yeah. So, um, that, or Endless Cooper or whatever, but. So a lot of bands were curious about that. You know, they were curious about the whole operation and how it worked, you know, and they could see it was a well-oiled machine and, and they could see it was like, it was like a bulldozer. I mean, Kiss was like a bulldozer. So those other bands that just, you know, didn't have makeup and costumes and stuff and they just had their amps, you know, this was pretty intense for them, you know? Yeah. So, um, but on the good note, um, one of the one of the my favorite bands and one of the nicest guys of all time was Rush, and they got along great uh, with Kiss. They got along great with them. Getty was a great guy. They're all great guys, and they had a great time. I mean, they would come out on stage. Uh, Rush would come out and throw pies at the end of the tour. <laughs> They'd throw pie in Dean's face and shit like that, you know. And and. Kiss wouldn't let anybody do that kind of stuff unless they really liked them, you know? Yeah. Right. <laughs> oh, man. I heard some rumor about Rush, like, throwing a bunch of marbles out on stage. Is that true? No, it wasn't Rush, but I can tell you that story. That was in Gothenburg, or Gutenberg, Sweden, and uh, the European tour, which was a grueling tour. But anyway, we got to uh, Sweden, and we were playing this ice rink, and they They'd um, block the stage off halfway. They put the stage halfway and to one end of the of the thing, and they put a big curtain across it because they didn't sell enough seats, right? 
And I don't know what the security, it's like it had, and they had no security at this place. People were sneaking six packs of beer in, I mean, drugs, everything you can think of. And uh, they had folding metal chairs with the metal legs and everything, right? And it was set up with uh, boards on top of an ice hockey rink. So it was cold as hell in there. But anyway, some idiot brought ball bearings. He brought a a sack of ball bearings, like pretty good size marble size board bear, ball bearings. Oh, right? Shit. The crowd was so rowdy and so drunk. Um, it's like the whole crowd had just come from happy hour. It was incredible. <laughs> we we could see it. It was like it was like you know how uh, if you're in a bar or something like that, how you can feel the energy, like there's something going to happen, something's going to yeah. something's going to happen. Well, uh-huh. you can feel it. And so the band comes on stage, and about the second song, this idiot throws those ball bearings up on stage. And Paul is shitting his pants because he's got, you know, they got them seven-inch platforms, right? You step on one of those ball bearings with those platforms, he could have killed himself, right? right? And then some idiot takes a chair and is bending the leg off of it. He bends the leg off of it and throws that up and hits Peter's drums. Like wow. a, a like, like one of the legs with a sharp end on it and hit Peter's drums. Another guy threw a chair up on stage. So by the third song, the band walked off. They said, "Fuck this, we're not doing this." Yeah. Wow, what a crazy show! Oh Damn. my god, it was unbelievable. <laughs> it was unbelievable. Were you? I think you were working for them at the like. There was a story that they would mention in interviews about they were playing somewhere down south and. Somebody hurled like an M80 up on stage and hit Peter right in the face with it. Do you remember this? That was before. I think that was before me. I don't remember. Oh, was that. it? Oh, okay. You were. Oh, you were there for the uh, Lakeland, Florida show where Ace got shocked, though, yeah. right? Yeah, I was. I was. I ran up on the on the platform and came from that side. Hawkeye went up the, or Chuck went up the front to get him. And uh, then we brought him backstage and put him in a chair, and he just sat there for about two minutes and we didn't know what was going to happen whether he was going to have to, to you know not do it or not what it turned out it was a um trip light one of the police lights was wired um and it touched the fog machine we had these old handmade fog machines that we made out of 55 gallon drums mm-hmm. and we put the heating element in the bottom and we got uh, dryer hoses and put them on and then we would had a basket on and you put dry ice in it and then you could lower the basket down into the hot water right and one of those things you know one of the uh, somehow one of the trip wires got t- touched up against one of those fog machines and that's what shorted it out and that's what sent the you know, the electricity through there. So, yeah, we were pretty freaked out. But he turned around, and after a few minutes, after about, say, three to four minutes, something like that was all, or about five minutes, he goes, I'm going to go back out. And so they went ahead and finished the show. Wow. Which was, I thought it, because he was pretty shaken up. You know, of course, he wrote that song, me about that, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. That's bad. Yeah, he said, he. He thought he was going to die, he said. But I got to tell you, most of my stories are about Ace because Ace was, uh, you know, how do I say it? Very colorful. <laughs> <laughs> very, very street 
savvy, street smart, uh, you know, what you see is what you get, you know. Had all the same friends that he had growing up, and they, they were still his friends. All the same friends came around, you know. He just, he just was ace was ace. But let me tell you a really good story. Uh, when we were in that town in Gothenburg, Sweden, the day we got in, uh, we got in early and, uh, it's, it's like, it's kind of like a mini San Francisco. It had a trolley car going up the middle of it and it had a street going down. There was, there was this fancy restaurant down at the bottom of this one street close to our hotel. And we pulled in, the band got in earlier cause they flew and we got in about five o'clock that night. And as we're driving into the hotel with the bus we were on, we look out and we see Ace walking up the street. He's walking up the hill, up the side of the street, barefoot, with a bottle of champagne in his hand. Right? Yeah. Barefoot with a bottle of champagne at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> you got to get that picture. So Hawkeye and I look at each other and go, oh, my God, what the hell is going on? You know, because first of all, he shouldn't be without his security guy, which at that time was Doberman, you know, uh, Rick. Anyway, yeah, Rick Stewart. He shouldn't, he, he shouldn't have been without him or Big John or somebody. And, and he was barefoot and his pants were rolled up like, <laughs> you know, like Tom Sawyer thing. Yeah. And, uh, so I go, Hawkeye, we got to get off. So I had the bus driver stop. I, I said, we got to go see what the fuck's going on. There's something going on. He's by himself and he's barefoot. So <laughs> Hawkeye and I run over to him and we go, hey, hey, what's happening? He goes, hey, Curly, what's up? He goes, uh, come on, let's go get a drink like that. We, we go, okay. So we go around the corner and we go into this bar and then we get him then to tell us what's going on. I said, what, what's going on? And he goes, ah, they, I didn't like that restaurant we were in, right? Well, he wouldn't tell us exactly what happened. So he goes, but let's go back to the hotel. And can I stay in your room for a while? <laughs> no. Why would he ask if, if he could hang out in our room for a while, right? <laughs> He's in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> he wants from someone. <laughs> so we go, sure, sure. So we go back to the hotel. And it's one of these old, older type of, uh, you know, hotels with the, with the awning, the green awning out front, you know, and, uh, you can look out the window and see the street with the truck car and everything. And so, uh, he go, I go, what's going on? We get to the room. I said, what's going on? And then all of a sudden the phone rings and it's Rick Stewart. We called him Doberman. And, uh, and, uh, he goes, have you seen Ace? And Ace is shaking his head. Like, don't tell him. And I but Hawkeye said, no, tell him you just saw him out front. And I said, okay. So I said, well, you know what? Hawkeye said he just saw him out front jump on the back of that trolley car and he was heading up the street. So we see Rick run out the front door under the green awning and run up the street after the trolley car <laughs> looking for Ace. But Ace was in our room, right? <laughs> it was too funny. Uh, anyway, so, that was that was so what was he in trouble moment. for? What did he do? Yeah, well, yeah why was he barefoot? Well, okay. So now here's the here's the kicker. In the restaurant, it was it had a like a pond in the center of the restaurant with a wall around the pond about like a pool, but it was about oh a foot and a half high. 
And in the center of the pond, it was round, and there were tables all the way around it, and there was a bar on one side of it. And they had these electronic remote-controlled boats. And so you would send your drink, or you'd write your drink order on a piece of paper, and, and you'd send the boat over to the bartender, and he'd make the drink, put it in the boat, and you had a controller at your table, and you would, you know, guide the boat back oh, to your table. Cool. Well, Ace, being the gadget master that he was, he had to control the controller. He had to have that. So he was messing around with the controller, but of course starts running his ships into other boats and knocking over other people's drinks, right? <laughs> he guides his boat into somebody else's boat, knocks over the drinks. Finally, he puts the thing down. He takes his shoes off, rolls his pants up, and he gets in the pond. And he goes, he goes, hey, it's Godzilla. And he goes over and he grabs one of the boats, picks it up, and dumps the, all the drinks into the thing. <laughs> and of course, man going crazy. He he jumps out of the thing, and I don't know how this happened, but somehow he got away from everybody and got out the door. And that's when we saw him walking up the street. Wow! <laughs> oh God! Oh God! I love Ace Frehley stories. Godzilla's delivering your drinks today. Oh, that's too funny! Awesome. <laughs> Well, you you got so many A stories. Like, I mean, it's weird to call him your boss, but I mean, you were teching for him and Paul. Like, like, how demanding was he as far as what he wanted equipment wise and sound wise? He wasn't demanding. He just he told me what he wanted, and I did what he wanted. I didn't really question it. You know, I uh, he had his sound down. He knew exactly how he wanted it, and he pretty much kept it the same. He had a couple of guitar pedals. You know, a phaser and a, uh, well, we had an echoplex uh, for that guitar solo. And I used to run that and make it go faster and that, during that whole thing. Oh, yeah. uh, but other than that, his sound was a straight, um, you know, Les Paul sound through Marshalls. It was, there wasn't, um, it was that, you know, that Jimmy Page type thing. So you say for a while there you were doing that for Paul, too, at the same time. What's the difference between Ace and Paul in that respect? Well, Ace had a 100-watt um, Marshall head and two cabinets, two Marshall cabinets, 410s, or I'm sorry, 412s. And Ace had two 100-watt heads and four cabinets. And then, of course, we mic'd Paul's and we mic'd Ace's, one of each of the cabinets, and sent that through the main PA. Um, but... Taking care of them, really what it entailed was taking care of the guitars and uh, tuning them, uh, restringing them. I put new strings on all of them about every three, well, twice a week pretty much. And um, uh, making sure the biggest thing was cleaning the guitars off the next day after after a show because they had grease paint on them. They had makeup. They had sweat. They had smoke, uh, you know. Everything you can think of, they had confetti on them, so we'd have to clean the guitars really good. Wow! Right. You know, the you next really think about that stuff. That. No, you don't think about it if, unless you're in the middle of it. But there, there was so much going on on that stage. I mean, between the bombs and the fire and the and the confetti cannons and all the different stuff back then that we had going on. Yeah, no, yeah. and it just got bigger and bigger. It just got bigger and bigger. 
Yeah, I was going to ask, because like, when you came on board, they were still using what we co- refer to as the Alive stage setup, which was pretty bare bones, but with you know the candelabra, yeah. this wall of amps. But And right. then you go to the, the Destroyer tour comes along, and it's like a quantum leap forward as far as stage production goes, where like... Because even if you see photos of the Destroyer stage from above, there was a lot more going on with that stage than people in the crowd even saw. Because like even the floor had different design and stuff on it. And I saw oh. pictures of um, like the amps behind Ace. Like there was parts where the wall in front of the amps would like, or the amps would explode. Do you remember all this stuff? Well, yeah, I had to I had to load that amp up every day. I had to put it back in. It had a uh, hydraulic uh, pressures on, on it. Had a hydraulic on it. And then the speakers were tied to this hydraulic thing. And what I could do is just push the button at a certain point in a song, you know, wherever, whatever, I don't even remember what song it was, but I pushed the button and the, and the speakers would fly out of the amp nice. onto the stage. <laughs> it was great. That is cool. Um, yeah. But let me tell you about the destroyer thing. That was that the destroyer tour marked a lot of, um, it marked a lot of first. It, it, we went from two semis at that point and, and two buses, I guess, to um, eight semis and three wow. buses. So it was a big shift in, in the size of the show. And there was something like 50 people on tour. We had two scenery trucks to start off with. And it took to set Destroyer up. I was I think the first one was Richmond, Virginia, the first show. And it took us three days. We had to cancel the show and postpone the show because it took three days to set the whole thing up. Oh, wow. There was just so much moving parts, so many moving parts for that scenery. I mean, they had two carpenters on the road, for Christ's sakes. Who does that? <laughs> and that was like a broad, Broadway the, show. Yeah, it was. It really was. And, you know, the makeup thing. And I always felt that way because a lot of the makeup artists that we had were you know, had to work Broadway, you know, they'd worked at the whole Broadway scene. But anyway, so Destroyer was really what marked, and I was, I was in for the recordings of Destroyer as well. I was there the whole time they recorded that album. And, uh, oh, wow. yeah, that was pretty intense. Bob Ezra well, was I, a really good. Producer. Yeah. The, like there's a lot of stories about the making of that record. How about how, Ezrin was pretty demanding and would push them beyond what they were comfortable doing most of the time. And uh, and also the story about, you know, Peter stating that they were, I don't know, and if you were there, were you there for the recording of Beth? Because Peter talks about how Paul and Gene were kind of mocking him through the recording of that song. Yeah, they, they didn't, Gene hated that song. First of all, Gene had a real aversion to them doing a slow song. And, and when they started to rehearse it, and this is how it, how it became a thing where Peter came out on a stool and sang was because Gene didn't want to stand there and play a slow song on the bass. He goes, what am I supposed to do? Hang out by this tree back here? You know, look <laughs> like a jazz player. Yeah. You know, he did not like that idea at all. He thought that was totally out of character and he didn't think they should do a slow song period. He didn't think kiss was about that. He didn't think they should do a slow song. And, um, so that's kind of how that happened. But I was there when uh, Peter walked in the studio that day, and Bob Ezrin was set at, sitting at a piano, and Peter was whistling the tune. Peter was just whistling that the, the melody for it. And Bob says, mm-hmm. what are you whistling? He goes, oh, it's just this idea I had this morning. 
And he goes, well, whistle that. Let me see if I can find the chords. So Bob, you know, plucked out some chords on the piano to it. And that's how that song came about. Wow. Wow. And then then there was another time where Bob um, had Gene and Paul come over to his house because he needed one more song for the Destroyer album. And he goes, well, we got to write a song. So why don't you guys come over tomorrow morning? And so I had to bring guitars over to Ezrin's house and it was just Gene and Paul and Ezra and me, and I sat there and they wa- and they wrote King of the Nighttime World. Wow. Yeah, it was really cool. I, I was in awe. I was like, you know, I just was drinking it in because I was there. I was That's part cool. of it. You had a front row seat to everything exploding, so as a, a member of the staff worked for this band, I mean, w- were you as blown away as everybody else by how quickly it blew up? You know what? I always use the analogy that it was like uh, launching a ship from, you know, launching a spaceship from Kennedy Space Center. You know, it, it, the band, it was like being on a rocket ride. And it was like um, the band, especially during the Destroyer thing, because it went because, you know, when I started, it, it wasn't that big a deal. It didn't feel like that big a deal. But all of a sudden, within a year's time, Destroyer came out. And all of a sudden, it, it just took off. Okay, and it was big, and you could feel it. You could feel the energy behind it. it you could feel the motion, the momentum going on, and uh, and you knew something big was going to happen. Then, of course, Kiss Alive Two, and or you know all of that, uh, Love Gun, and I was in on that one, and Rock and Roll Over, and Kiss Alive Two. So when you're getting no, when you're getting to be that Go part ahead. of the the era of Kiss where you're talking about like Love Gun and Kiss Alive Two, are you privy to any of their conversations that would eventually lead to the solo albums? Uh, yeah. Well, what happened on the solo albums was they were working on them individually on their own. You know, each guy was working on his own songs for those albums. And so they didn't really, they weren't really sharing them with each other, you know, and I never saw them really sharing them with each other Yeah. until the albums. I was, I wasn't in on any of the recordings of them. So it must've, they must've done them. I don't know, periodically over time. I don't know how they did that to be honest with you. But I guess, I guess what I'm asking is, you know, you're there with them all the time when they're out on tour. I mean, what kind of stuff leads to that decision being made because what other bands have done that you know say oh we're going to take a break we're each going to put our own album then we're going to get back together Mm -hmm. where does that even begin well a lot of that stuff came from bill of coin their manager uh that i think that was his idea to do the solo albums Hmm. i'm not really sure whose original idea it was but it can't, I'm well, sure a lot of the big ideas came from Paul Jean and Bill Coyne. Those well, there was, there's been, I mean, and you know, I don't know, you're probably, I mean, through KISS fans, like we, it's one of those things where Gene and Paul have kind of changed their stories over the years as far as what led to what and what, what happened. But there's always been discussion about, like, uh, one story that they liked to talk about for years was that the band, when they did Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park, when they were on the set, Ace and Peter both were like super unhappy and and especially Ace and said that they wanted to leave the band and that Gene and Paul and Bill Coyne were like, well, why don't we just all, you make a solo album? We'll all make solo albums. Do you think that's the yeah. truth or do you think that was kind of a PR line? Probably. I was with I was with Ace that day. 
And uh, I I'd left the band and started my own band in, in Utah. And uh, but we went down for that show and we hung out with him. And I was hanging out with Ace that day. And uh, he was pretty upset. He got pretty drunk and you know pretty stoned because uh, if you watch Kiss Me to Fam, he was pretty out of it on that in that movie. I mean, he was pretty pretty buzzed. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and there was definitely some shit going on there between them. Yeah. You know, uh, they, you know, Gene didn't like the fact that that Ace drank. You know, Gene. I mean, we made a bet with Gene one time. Uh, I think it was on. Uh, it might have been, I forget what album it was now. Oh, we said if, if one of your songs makes uh, the top ten, you got to go out and get drunk with us. Because he never drank. Right. He never drank. And he goes, okay, I will. Right? And I think it was Christine 16 or one of those songs. I don't even remember which one it was now. And... Um, and it, it went into, I think it was number nine or something like that. And we said, come on, Gene, you got to go get drunk with us. Well, he, he wouldn't. He, he chickened out on that. So I, I never ever saw him drink or do drugs. So he hated the fact that Ace would get drunk and, you know, he would mess up. Ace would mess up sometimes, but most of the time he couldn't tell. It was so loud. I mean, it was hard to tell. Occasionally he'd out of, out of tune stuff but most of the time it didn't matter because the songs were pretty basic anyway uh yeah. at their core they were they were the foundation was pretty basic at the core you know uh so he hated that and and paul and him were real tight and then peter was kind of a i don't know how to say this he was um not a very strong-willed individual he you know he kind of let them dominate him a lot. And he was kind of, he complained quite a bit sometimes, but yeah, you know, I thought he was the great best drummer for the band. I thought he was the perfect drummer for the band myself. Mm -hmm. I thought he was, you know, he's not the greatest drummer in the world, but he was perfect for that band. I thought, yeah, yeah. just I like agree. Charlie Watts with, with the stones, you know? Yep. So, um, so they were definitely, um, thinking about replacing him. Now, I do know this. The band that I was in in Chicago was called Lois Lane, and we were working on trying to get a record deal. We did all original music. We were kind of like Sticks in Boston and Foreigner, that style of stuff. And we played all over Chicago, all over the Midwest. And uh, one night we were playing at the Thirsty Wheel in Chicago, and I got a phone call. Uh, the manager came up and said, hey, there's, there's a guy on the phone uh, named Paul Stanley wants to talk to you. I said, okay, so I went down to his office because that was before cell phones, of course, guys, right? <laughs> so I went down to the guy's office, and it was Paul. And he goes, hey, Barry, how's it going? And I'm like, yeah, it's going fine. I go, what's up, man? I said, why are you calling me at the Thirsty Whale in Chicago <laughs> on a Tuesday night? <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, he goes, well, I, I just want to be up front with you. I want to be up front with you because um, uh, I didn't want to go behind your back, but we want to audition your drummer. And I said, okay. I said, well, how do you know about him? And he goes, well, see, Ace had seen our drummer, and so had um, Fritz and Big John, and somebody else had seen our drummer, and he was an incredible drummer. He actually set his drums on fire. He did a whole fire solo that people would come just to see him do his fire solo. Anyway, it would have been perfect drummer for Kiss. I mean, you, you, you couldn't have picked a better drummer. If you're going to replace Peter, you replace him with this guy that sets his drums on fire. 
right? <laughs> yeah. So, so I give, I say, okay, so I give, uh, Bill Paul's number and, and Bill calls him and talks to Paul and they were going to fly him out to audition. They were going to fly him out, put him up in the Waldorf or something like that. And the first year he would have made 600,000, a penthouse apartment and a new car. And that's wow. exactly what, um, what, uh, what was the guy that first guy? Eric Carr. Eric Carr. That's exactly what he, got. So this and, was around that, that time, like 1980. Yeah. Oh yeah. It was right before that. It was wow. right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, Cause they called before they got Eric, before they tried him, they were going to try bill. And they only had a list of about Fritz told me later that, and Fritz was one of the ones Fritz and Ace told him about, uh, about our drummer, Bill, Bill Gent. So I told Bill, I said, Bill said, what should I do? What should I do? You know, I mean, God, I said, Bill, for God's sake, there's the only thing you can do is go audition because yeah. even if you don't get the gig, you can say I auditioned for kiss for God's sake. That's like, you know, you got to do it. He goes, yeah, but what about our band? I'm going to ruin our band. I said, don't worry about that. If you get in kiss, you can help our band down the road. That's all. The only thing you got to know, just go do it. Don't think about it. Just go do it. And he turned it down because our singer intimidated him right now. Fast forward a couple of years later, whenever it was, they replaced Ace. I get another phone call from Paul and Paul goes, Hey man, we want to audition your guitar player. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> what? He goes, yeah, we heard about your guitar player. <laughs> so I said, okay, well, so I gave John Werner a call. Now John Werner was an incredible guitar player. He played with, uh, all of his friends were Quiet Riot, uh, Frankie Benelli. He grew up with him. He played on uh, David Foster's first album. You know, the producer, David Foster, he played on yeah. his first album. Yeah, and wow. when he was 15, he played on uh, lead guitar on, on this album for David Foster. So, you know, John was an incredible guitar player. So they sent him a ticket for, you know, ticket, gave him... Uh, Flew him from Salt Lake to L.A., put him up in a hotel. And I forget how much. They gave him some money, $500 or something. And then they had him come down to this rehearsal studio. So he came down to the rehearsal studio, and he jammed with Paul and Gene. And uh, I think Eric was there at that time. I don't remember. For he sure. was, yeah. And played, played for like two and a half hours with him. And Paul really liked him. But Gene didn't, and John had blonde hair, so that was really a kind of a. Uh, at that time, they yeah they wanted somebody. He was tall enough. He definitely had looked apart, and he oh man, he was incredible. It was like it was like a Jimmy Page, uh, Paul Kossoff type of guitar player, you know, Bad Company, that yeah. type. Just just was perfect guitar player for. Him. I mean, he could play, he could play, actually lead guitar wise, he could play Rings Around Ace. Okay, but he also had that bad company type of rock feel to his playing. So anyway, he auditioned and and Gene didn't Gene didn't want to go for it. Paul liked him, Gene didn't, so he didn't get the gig. So wow. If you want to go on YouTube, there's a couple of songs. It's it's called Lois Lane. Uh, it's called uh, It Only Takes a Minute. Look up It Only Takes a Minute by Lois Lane. It'll come up on YouTube. And there's a few other songs on there. I think there's 
four or five songs on there. That's cool. I and you'll check get to that hear, out. You'll get to hear the um, drums. And, that, and I think we recorded that in 79, I believe 79 or 80, something right. like that. That's cool. Let me ask you so this. Really Go ahead. Um, I didn't so get like, off on that, but I thought, I thought you'd find it interesting. No, it's no, super that's, that's, interesting. Yeah, Action. That's, that's super interesting, especially because we're both a little obsessive about that era of when Ace was be- getting replaced. Because, well, we have a history with Vinnie Vincent, but I'll, I'll, I'll tell you about that sometime. Other, um, but uh, the uh, like, so like when Destroyer Tour starts, that that's like when things start really blowing up. Beth becomes a hit. They start becoming instead of just a cult like band with basically an older teen audience, they become an, an international thing. And yeah. one of the the big shows on that tour was the Anaheim Stadium show. And oh, God. I'd, I'd love to hear your memories of that, because that was a huge show for the band. I have a great memory of that that I think you guys will appreciate. But when we got to the Anaheim show, that was the biggest crowd attendance that they'd had to date. Okay, It was 45,000 people in that stadium. And I went to get, uh, for some reason, I had to go to the hotel to get the guitars. And, oh, because they were playing, they were they were practicing or something at the hotel. So I had to go in a limo and, and get the guitars and get them. And I came back with Gene and Paul and, and we got it. We pulled into the backstage area and it was like, you know, the typical Hollywood backstage with all the trailers and, you know, ping pong tables and all kinds of shit back there. Right. And, uh, we pull up in the cars and the, and, uh, you can see the stadium from where we're at and you can see the crowd and the Gene and Paul got out of the car and they just stood there like in amazement and they were just staring at how big that crowd was. And, uh, Paul goes, man, look how many people are out there. So it was like it, to that, at, up to that point, that was the most people they'd ever played to. Wow. And it was flowing in the, Seeger, Ted Nugent. And, yeah. There's some great footage of that show, but uh, I can't imagine being there because it just, it was like, I mean, that had to have been a very landmark experience for the, for all, everybody that was involved with that show. Well, it was. And, uh, that, uh, you know, um, Fanfare and uh, Hot Sam, man, they had one hell of a PA setup for that show. And the sound was awesome. But, you know, the funny thing was when they started the show, you know, uh, and they come running down the stairs, right? Gene come running down the stairs. They had the fog going off, right? Well, Gene fell. And in the video, Gene fell, and it looked like he kept running down more stairs because he just completely disappeared. And all of a sudden, his, he popped up out of the fog because he actually <laughs> fell down. <the> stairs. <laughs> but you oh couldn't tell that. On, it just, and I'm sure the crowd didn't see it either. It just looked like, you know, if somebody's running down the stairs and they just keep going into the basement, yeah. that's kind of what it looked like. Wow. And all of a sudden, he popped up, and there he was again. And think about stuff like that. I mean, Kiss is a band that the live experience, there's so many moving parts. In your adventures with Kiss, you know, I got to imagine stuff went wrong sometimes. What was your biggest oh shit moment in trying to produce a live Kiss event? Well, one comes to mind, one big one. And that was... uh, L.A. Forum, which is now the Staples Center, uh, first time we went there uh, on tour was, I guess, 75. 
I don't remember the day. It's just, you know, you, you guys could probably look this up. Anyway, the first time we were there, they played five nights in a row and 17,000 people each night. They played five nights. We set up once and then we didn't have to tear down till the last night. So it was incredible. So we set up and I think it was the, I believe it was the first night. I don't remember which night it was, but anyway, so the stage came, it was around, um, railing around the back of the stage and the stage touched the corner of the stage, uh, just touched right up against it. So then they sold seats behind the stage for some reason. I didn't never understood this, but for some reason they went ahead and sold seats behind the stage. Uh, so now usually Dove stayed on one side, like over by me and big John stayed over by Gene on that side of the stage. Well, the show starts, right? And I guess about, Oh, maybe second or third song into it. Some kid decides jump on stage and he's going to grab a guitar. So he jumps over that railing, jumps right on the corner of the stage and takes off across the back of the amp line. And John, big John sees him. Now John is barreling down behind this guy and he's a big guy, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not, not a lot of room back there between the light stands and the drum riser and the bass amps and all, all the chords and the fog machines. There's all kinds of shit to trip over. So big John's running towards my side of the stage from Gene's side from in the back chasing this kid and this kid's running as fast as he can towards the guitars and I just I was coming around just in time to see this happening I, I poke my head around and I see John coming I see this kid coming and he either is going to crash into the guitar John's going to tackle this guy you can tell he's just going to tackle him no matter what and he's either going to crash into the guitars or he's going to crash into the amps Thank God he chose the amps. He <laughs> took that kid into the back of all those Marshall stacks, and they all freaking came down. Oh, no. They all fell down. Like building blocks. Fell down <laughs> on the stage. Cord snapped off. Both Paul and Ace's guitars went out. And, <laughs> and Big John grabs this guy, picks him up, hauls him down. Thank God they didn't hit the guitars, because if they hit the guitars, those were sitting on the back of the stage. They would have went off the back of the stage. I don't, I don't know what would have happened. Anyway, Ace just casually grabs his guitar cord and kind of saunters in his way that he walks across the stage, and he tries to plug into Gene's bass amp so he can keep playing, right? <laughs> and Gene sees him doing it, so Gene chases him away. He, he like, literally does this monster thing and chases Ace away. <laughs> well, by the time Ace got back to the other side of the stage, I had hooked one head up and one cabinet. So I had one head, one cabinet, threw the microphone on it for the PA, so Ace was hooked up. And then we hooked up um, um, Pulse. We got a cabinet and a head, and for Paul hooked up and then Hawkeye and I and everybody pitched in and we got the, all the whole stack set back up. But that was wow. pretty intense. Wow, was I guess. Woo. Oh, wow. The excitement so, uh, that comes with a job like that. I love it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> let me, uh, let me propose a two part question. So Gene is well known for knowing that he's bedded down over 4,600 women. A, do you think that's true from what you've seen? And B, did the crew get to enjoy the benefits of Gene Simmons with the groupies as well? Well, do you have about three hours? <laughs> <laughs> we 
We do now. <laughs> I can tell you this. I don't know about the actual numbers, but yes, it's true. And, um, yeah, jeez. Oh, I'll give you a story about that. He, uh, one of the tours, and here again, I don't remember which one, he used to take uh, Polaroids of all of the girls. Right. And he would do this. He would like, he would try to score a, a, a stewardess if they happened to be going to the same hotel they were going in. He'd try to score them and get them, you know, lay them, you know, before sound check. Then he'd try to pick up a girl at sound check that was hanging out, bring her back, do her, come back to the show. And then he had, um, Eddie Belandis, the security guy, he'd have him, he would look for girls in the audience that he wanted to be with. And he would have Eddie go tell them what hotel they were in and to come down and wait in the lobby. So then when they would get back to the hotel, he would send Eddie down to get a girl. And so Eddie would come down and get a girl and take her up to the room. And then as soon as that he was done with that girl, then Eddie would take that girl out the back door and he'd go get another girl and bring her up. Wow. Wow. I've seen it. I've seen it happen. So <laughs> yeah, the numbers right are there. there. I mean, the numbers are there, but, um, well, I'll be nice. I won't, I won't say some of the stuff I know, but anyway, so we got to the end of that tour and, uh, and he did a, he put together, uh, uh, oh, he had some videos. He, he bought a black and white video camera. And he sent this, oh, it's when we hit L.A. for those shows I told you about where the marshals came down. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, he sent around an invitation to everybody on the crew to come to his hotel to see the screening of what he called, his title was Common Sluts. Oh, no. <laughs> now, you know, an invitation, a paper invitation to come and see the screening of Common Sluts. Hey, we were in LA and we were we were there for five days. The last thing we wanted to do was go to fucking Gene's room and look at all the girls that he had screwed that tour. <laughs> you know, we wanted to get our own women, you know? Kathleen right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, must have been proud of it though. <laughs> Although I I've to heard it was a quantity invitations. over quality thing. Is that true? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, here's a, here's a great story. We're in that hotel in, in Seattle, that round one that's on the bay. Um, it was the one where Led Zeppelin stayed. Edge, this is the Edgewater. Yes, yeah. Well, that the Edgewater Hotel, that was, um, there's a story that, that Ace was yeah. would, uh, would glued all of his furniture to the ceiling. Is that true? <laughs> that was in uh, uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Oh, I yeah. was there for that. Well, <laughs> let me, that's one of my best stories. You want to hear it? Yes, please. Yes. Okay. Fritz Postlewaite, the sound man, uh, monitor maker, decided for that tour that he would bring a chainsaw on the road. <laughs> now, what use would a roadie have for a chainsaw on the road with a rock band? Right? Right. Yeah. Well, I, don't know. I was rooming with Fritz, and we were staying in the, it was a Sheridan Hotel, and we were on about the 10th or 11th floor of this hotel in Tulsa, and we had the day off, and the band and everybody was on the same floor, which n- never usually happened, but for some reason it did this time, 
And Fritz, we're sitting there, and the phone rings, and it's Ace. And Ace goes, hey, is, is, um, is Fritz there? And I said, yeah. And he goes, is it true that he had he brought a chainsaw with him on the road? And I said, well, let me let you talk to him. So I gave the phone to Fritz. And Fritz says, hey, Fritz, let me borrow your chainsaw. <laughs> now, I don't know what this is. I don't know what possessed Fritz to actually give him the chainsaw. Yeah, it's not a good idea. A drunk musician on his day off drinking champagne a fucking chainsaw in his room. It, it can only lead to disaster, you know? So, so um, he, he had a 100-foot extension cord because they, they didn't have the gas kind back then, so... He takes the cord and the chainsaw, and Ace opens the door, grabs the chainsaw, shuts the door, and throws all the locks on them. You can hear the locks closing, you know, as he shuts the door. And and we're, I'm like, oh, God, Fritz, what have you done, man? I said, what have you done? You didn't have to tell him you had that. You could have said, no, that was a story. Why'd you what give that you to him? He goes, I'm, 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 I want to see what he does. Fritz <laughs> is like, I want to see what he does. <laughs> I'm like, oh, shit. So not not very long later, all of a sudden, you can hear this this chainsaw all the way down the hall. Uh-huh. I mean, it's so friggin' loud, right? People are sticking their heads out of the room, out of their doors, and going, what's going on, right? All of a sudden, I see Big John run down the hallway. He's pounding on Ace's door. Ace, what the fuck? All of a sudden, the manager's there. Now we've got about five or six people out of, outside of Ace's door. They're pounding on the door. And meantime, the <laughs> And you know he's sawing furniture up. I mean, you can hear it, right? Yeah. We, we can all out there. We're all standing outside the door. We can all hear it. And we're all looking at each other and holding our heads and going, oh, my God. And uh, all of a sudden, it stops. And uh, the, uh, Big John pounds the door. Open the goddamn door now, Ace. So <laughs> you hear you hear the, lat- the latches get unhooked on the door, right? Two or three latches. And he slowly opens the door, and he goes, come on in. <laughs> and we kind of all kind of like kind of sneak in. I mean, we kind of walk in very slowly because we don't know what we're going to see. And as we're walking in, all of the furniture is, all the legs are cut off all the furniture, the tables, the chairs, the dresser, and it's all put back where it's supposed to be. Okay? <laughs> and all of the, he gathered all the legs up and threw them over the balcony out into the parking lot. So he kind of cleaned it all up and put all the stuff back and he just Looked at us and he goes, we'll go, what were you, what were you, somebody said, what were you thinking? And he goes, I was feeling a little Japanese. Oh, jeez. You know I was feeling a little Japanese. So I thought I'd cut everything down to sides. <laughs> <laughs> we're, oh, we're God. Just dumbfounded, like, oh, my God, what? What's going through your mind? Anyway, I I forget how much that cost him. Uh, it was several thousand. Yeah, <laughs> Golly. and we got banned from Sheridan Hotels for that one. 
<laughs> there is truly no one like Ace Frehley. <laughs> no, there isn't. And it's funny because I have a ton of stories about him, and I'm, I know the one about the fishing thing in Seattle, but I have a ton of stories about him, but not any of about Paul. And I was thinking about that today. I'm going, and I did an interview with uh, John Hart and Tony Mann, and I was thinking, I I couldn't think of many stories to tell about Paul that would be the sort of thing that people would really, you know, want to hear as far as, you know, extracurricular, you know, mm-hmm. off stage activities. Yeah. Now he seemed to seem to be, he seemed like he was always pretty well behaved. But I mean, we we had Tom Harper on, who was Paul's tech on the Dynasty tour, and Paul mentioned that Paul or or Tom mentioned that Paul could be kind of sensitive and hard to deal with at times. Did you have to deal with that? Yeah, but I didn't really have a problem. I didn't really have much of a problem because all I, I realized that all I had to do was do what they wanted yeah. and then everything take care of itself. So with Paul, I just, I just played the game with him. I just played his tech and I was real nice to him and whatever he asked me to do, I did. And I just didn't bitch about it. Wow. So that paid off because at the end of the, uh, destroyer tour he walked out on stage on the last show and he handed me a check for a thousand bucks you know from paul stanley for a thousand bucks so that's cool uh, he must have liked that's good but like so i mean as as they got as they got bigger and bigger over the years did you notice the division between paul and gene and ace and peter because of you know the excesses yeah well, you know, you know, there's endless stories about what fame does to people. Um, you know, basically fame, either you reach a point where you want to have time to yourself and you don't want all of that fanfare, or you eat it up like Gene does, Gene and Paul. They love the fanfare. Peter didn't care, and Ace didn't care about all of that. Peter yeah. and Paul loved playing rock star. They loved it. I mean, you know, that's who they were. And, but, but Peter and Ace, they, you know, Ace, it, it wouldn't have mattered if he was in Kiss or if he was in some local band in upstate New York. He would have still been the same guy. He would have still done the same things. That's kind right. of why I like him so much. You know, why I got along. So when, when we hired Hawkeye to come on later on, uh, I let Hawkeye take care of Paul and I took care of Ace. And it worked out great because Hawkeye's super quiet, super nice guy, really easy to get along with. Everybody loved him. So, it was perfect. So he would just take care of Paul's guitars and I would take care of Aces. That was a pretty easy gig, actually. Yeah. Man, that's cool. Uh, well, one thing I got to add, because I noticed on your Facebook page, you've got these photos of the band not wearing makeup, but wearing dresses. Can you explain what the hell's going on with those pictures? <laughs> yeah. I, Gene, when I took those pictures, that was the last show of the kiss alive tour and it was uh, in dallas fort worth and they did i think two nights there and sticks opened up those shows and it was a there was a big backstage area with a lot of people backstage i think because it was the last shows of the tour the trucks were yet we had parked all the trucks and the buses and everything behind the, the stage it was amazing I've never seen anything quite like it and uh so on the way to sound check on the last day, Paul uh, decided they drove by some uh, dress shop or something. And Paul said, Hey, let's go in. 
uh, let's go into the store and let's get some dresses and dress up like women and show up, arrive at the gig in dresses, right? <laughs> Just to fuck with the crew. It was about fucking with the crew. And, uh, and it wasn't about anything else. Just yeah. It was about doing silly at the end of the tour because it's always a tradition to do something crazy on the last show of a tour. Yeah, It's always been like something crazy. And uh, so they did, and they arrived with those outfits on <laughs> But nobody had cameras except for me and Eddie, and I think Lydia was there, and I think she had a camera, but yeah. just me and Eddie that I knew of, Eddie um, Belandis, that had cameras, and I always carried my, this Kodak Instamatic, I had it on a little pouch, and I had it on my belt, because, hey, I knew, I knew someday I was going to regret it if I didn't have pictures of some of this. So, so um, I took pictures of them they let me take pictures of them, which was unusual. And when I took a picture of Gene, that one I have of Gene, and he goes, I better never see this picture in a magazine. I said, <laughs> you don't have to worry about Gene. Yeah, you know, I got offered $5,000 for those at one time. Wow. Oh, I bet. You know, I could have sold them. I could have sold them, but the, I just, I think I posted them out maybe a year, two years ago. It was the first time I ever put them on Facebook. But I figured at this point it doesn't really matter. Yeah, but right. back then, they went without makeup in dresses. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I could have got a lot of money for that. Oh sure. So how many how well, many photos well, of the band from those backstage, you know, back scene kind of stuff? How how much of that do you have now? Oh, I don't have a lot. I have a few things now. I used to have a lot. I, I I'd have to really look. Um, I got some stuff. Man, I know the fans nowadays just love. I know I personally love to see the candid stuff from back when you know you weren't like you said. People didn't take pictures of Kiss without their makeup, so you know that's a pretty rare thing to have candid with a K photos of Kiss yeah. from back in that era. Yeah. That's awesome. I'd love to see that stuff. Well, I got one of Ace that you'll like. I'll send it to you when I'm done. Uh, of uh, the Rubber Raft story where. He called me up one day, and you know Bobby McAdams? Yeah. yeah. You heard that name? Sure. Best buddy. Well, he called me up, and this was after the Destroyer tour, and he made and they got all that money. Ace, first thing Ace did was he went out and bought all kinds of shit, clothes, boots, uh, and he bought a Cadillac, a red Eldorado Cadillac with a white leather top and white leather interior. And so he called me up one day, and he goes, hey, come on up, man. We're going to... We're going to do something. I said, well, what are you going to do? And he goes, ah, just come on up and you'll see. So I came up there and I pulled up to the driveway and next to his Cadillac in the driveway, he's got a, a Navy SEAL type uh, gray rubber raft. And him and Bobby are down on the ground trying to blow this rubber raft up. And I'm like, what the hell? What are you guys doing? And they're like, Hey, come on, man. We're going to blow this raft up and then we're going to take it out. I said, okay. So I helped him and we, we got the raft all blown up and he had a, like a 15 horsepower motor and we put it on the top of his Eldorado and tied it down. Oh, wow. And I thought we were going to go to a little lake somewhere, right? You know where we went? Hmm. We went to the Hudson River. It's <laughs> <laughs> a little raft, right? And I go, you got to be chitting me. We're not going to go out in that river. Have you ever seen the Hudson River? It's black with yeah. oil and shit. 
It's huge. It's wide. It's big, right? And I go, you got to be kidding me. We can't go out there in this raft. He goes, yeah, come on. It'll be fun. So the three of us get in this little, it, it was really a two-man raft, but all three of us got in this little raft with a 15-horsepower motor, and we're, we're just going out into the middle of the Hudson River. And sure as shit, here comes a big fucking ocean liner, right? Oh. Down the hut towards us. I'm like, Ace, there's a fucking ocean liner coming at us, man. We got to get out of here. So he turns it around. Now, 15 horsepower motor is not very fast, right? <laughs> Especially with three guys in a two-man boat. <laughs> barreling, down the river, barreling down the river. And we're like, <laughs> I mean, we had to be a spot on the, on the water to that, to yeah. that boat, you know? Anyway, so we made it back safe, obviously. Oh, shit. <laughs> it was little things like that, you know, that he did that was so much fun. That's awesome. Oh, man. What's the nicest thing you've ever seen Ace Frehley do? Oh, wow. That's interesting. Because um, you always hear the stories of his wild man side, you know, and I, I always like to hear the, like, you know, that the guy did nice things once yeah. in a while, too. I, I know he he took care of his friends. I do know that. I know. I don't know if he. I know he took care of Bobby. I think he helped Bobby get a house or apartment or something. And I know he uh, he bought stuff for his friends. He used to also, you know, put on parties and pay for everything for the parties and you know that kind of thing. He did a lot of nice stuff, but always usually for his friends. I don't know about family and stuff. Um, that. Pretty much it. He gave me one of those watches that he had, though. That was pretty nice. Yeah. Uh, Pulsar. It was called Pulsar. Made at Tiffany's, and you'll they're they're kind of big looking. They're really cool though. And uh, he said he got he gave me one that said you know to Barry Aiken from Ace Frehley, which was great. It was really cool. Right. So he That's did. Cool. You know, he, he was a good guy. And I saw him later on after the you know on some of the solo tours. I. I hooked up with him a couple of times. Um, I, you know, I'd have to really think about that, but but well, he was a nice guy. He had good heart. How did how did things end with you and Kiss? Well, do you remember what your last show was and what led to you being done with the band? Well, what led me, what happened was on that last tour, I met this singer in Salt Lake City, and we had a day off, and we talked about. I had thought before that tour that I said, if I'm going to try to make it in my own band, I'm going to have to do it soon. If I don't, I'll end up being a roadie the rest of my life. So I knew that I had to, if I was going to, I had to do something within the next few years. And I ended up meeting this thing around Salt Lake and we talked about putting a band together. And, and so at the end of the tour, which was that time where they dressed up in dresses, that was the last show. We went back and and Eddie Kramer, the producer, did five shows with us with a live recording truck, um, uh, a live recording studio that he had. That and he did um, Dallas, he did L.A., he did um, the Budokan in Japan, and one or two other places. Can't remember where. And uh, we went back to New York, and everybody else went home. I stayed and did went into the studio with those guys uh, to finish Kiss Alive too. So I just you know helped set up the amps and whatever. I took care of everybody at that point, whatever they needed. I'd run out and get food for everybody. And, but that was great, and I'm glad I did that. 
because um, I got to hear stories from Eddie Kramer talking about Led Zeppelin and Hendrix and talk how Hendrix and him built the studio and all, all kinds of great stories. It was That's incredible. Awesome. So if you were there for those live two, the studio album, the studio tracks, I mean, from your perspective, why was Ace not playing on that stuff? Did he just go home too? Ace did not like the studio. He did not really care about the studio. Yeah. <laughs> he definitely didn't care about the studio. You know, I noticed that on Destroyer. He just, you know, it was like pulling teeth to get him to come in and do his tracks. You know? Yeah. He was... Did, um... So, like, so, so the end of the Alive 2 tour was kind of the last thing you did with them. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. And then they told him, I told all, I called every one of them up and told them I was leaving when I did. After the, after the thing, I had uh, a month off and uh, I went out to Utah and we put the band together and I called them up, each one of them individually, and told them why I was leaving and so that they wouldn't hear some, story at the office or whatever you know right. mm-hmm. so we called each one of them up and told them they were all fine with it they were all like yeah great you know yeah, you and i think a... that's why paul was so like he could call me you know and ask me <laughs> about our drummer and our guitar player so how's the <laughs> band going can i have your drummer how about your guitar player <laughs> <laughs> but that's cool well, though, you know they, they got to respect yeah, that I did respect it. I thought it was great that he did that. You know, he must have respected me enough to do that. You know, because otherwise he would have just sent somebody out. You know, he could have just sent somebody out to talk to Bill, and that would have been it. Yeah. Yeah. Do you um, do you stay in touch with any of the old Kiss crew guys? Yeah, Hawkeye. I saw him. uh, When was it, Dave? January. December, he's you know with uh, Weird Al Ankovich. Ankovich, he works for him. Yeah, he's been working for him for years now. He lives in Minnesota. You know, Hawkeye built, uh, helped Prince build his studio. Oh wow! Wow, Paisley Park. Yeah, Minneapolis. He lives in Minneapolis, and after the whole Kiss thing, he went to work for Prince, and uh, he ended up staying with him and helping him build that studio out there. That's wild. Small world. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Rick Hendrickson. That's cool. So have you had any contact with the guys from kiss since you stopped working with them? Um, Ace and I saw Gene and Paul about two years ago. They actually opened a restaurant where I live in Oviedo, Florida which is mm-hmm. northeast of Orlando, and it's called um, Rock and Brew. What the hell is it? Rock and Brew. Rock and Brew. And uh, they opened out a couple of years ago. And I got there. I, I got to talk to Gene for a couple of minutes, and but they were leaving, and he looked beat. I mean, he looked worn out. They'd been there all day doing t- television stuff, and I couldn't get there. I tried to get there as soon as I could. And Paul had just pulled away, so I didn't get to talk to him, but I talked to Gene for a few minutes. That's the last time I saw him. Uh, and I seen Ace uh, several years back when he did a solo tour through here. I've seen him a couple of times when he came through. Oh, that's cool. Do you guys get to catch up? Yeah, it was good. But, you know, there's a lot of lot of uh, miles down the road between when I was with him. Yeah. You know, but we had some good laughs. Ace and I had some good laughs. I told the story with to the about the wireless about him playing guitar and up on the toilet 
Mm-hmm. And I told that story to the band, his band, you know, Oh God, they were rolling on the floor. Nice. <laughs> and he was looking at me like, he was, he was just looking at me like he didn't remember it. You know, he was looking at me like he was one of the, like he was one of the guys hearing the story for the first time. <laughs> yeah, he probably was. <laughs> well, well, that does sound like something I would do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's kind of the look he had. You know, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, I gotta, I have to ask. Like overall, like when you look back on your time with them, I mean, I know in the middle of it, it's like a whirlwind. But when you look back and you realize that this band has like sustained itself for almost fifty years now. I mean, it's got to be pretty uh, awesome to look back on that and realize that you were there for, like, the absolute peak of, of their powers. Yeah, it is. It, it definitely is. Yeah. I, I I had no idea they were going to go this long and this many albums and, you know, uh, it's amazing. They had an amazing career. Well, you, and sir, got, are uh, definitely a part of history, no doubt about it. <laughs> A little bit of it, yeah. Yeah, but still, you are. And this has been awesome today. I feel like we're just scratching the surface with you, man. Would you ever come back on the show with us again sometime? Sure. No problem. Man, we, I, I'd love that. Yeah, because I know that we're going to get several listener questions going, how did you not ask him about ABC? Right, yeah. You know, so, um, so we'll, have more, uh, we'll have more questions in the future. But thanks so much for taking the time to do this today. No problem, man. It's good talking to you guys. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett. 
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.